Welcome to Ed Ideas, relevant conversations for Christian education. As image bearers of God, we have been created to actually carry out this work of cultivation, unpacking, unfurling, so that making is how we be human. Anytime culture is going through transition and there's significant change, you can either look at it as, hey, this is the worst thing ever, or what an opportunity. We know that all adolescents are asking some really direction-setting questions in their life. The very first thing said about us in the Hebrew Scriptures is not that we are bad, that we are dirty, that we are sinful, that we are shameful, that we are anything. The very first thing said about us is we bear the image of God. Welcome to Ed Ideas. It's Brandon Tatum, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Mallory Wyckoff from the conference stage. I hope you enjoy. Mallory, that was rich. Uh, I really am grateful that you're here. Uh, I, I remember the first time we talked, I was, I was giving you the pitch. Uh, and I thought it was a fabulous pitch, by the way. <laughs> and, um, and so I'm using all my consumer language, and we got to call them out of consumption and into contribution. And I think I'm real clever. And you said something to the effect of, that's great, but kids that have experienced trauma can't do that. You kind of called me out on it. And I should have known that. Uh, we do a ton of like TRBI training at school and, and different kinds of trauma training. Uh, but it was, it was a great call out, and it's a needed discussion. And so I appreciate that. Um, Can I just say really quickly, I just want to make, make sure that the distinction's clear. Um, that I'm not suggesting that uh, those of us who experience trauma do not have something to offer and that we are somehow any less capable of being ones who create and contribute and serve others. In fact, those of us who are most in touch with our brokenness, I think, are, have the greatest capacity to then offer beauty and healing to the world. Um, I'm just really passionate about making sure that the language that we use and the practices that we have are doing so, are inviting uh, these folks to, um, this population rather, to um, to bring their full selves to the table in ways that honor their stories and experiences rather than contributing to that further harm. That's, that's great. That's powerful. The, the call to not focus on self and focus on others, I would imagine, I'm not going to say that, I'm going to say I have never in my life thought that phrase to be, could possibly be received negative mm-hmm. by somebody. Never in my life thought that. It's just to me, it's a no-brainer. We give it. Yet you're saying that it that could be if I've experienced trauma, and I've had a lot taken from me, mm-hmm. uh, that that could that could uh, be received a little negatively. Um, how can we better reframe that as adults? Mm-hmm. That that whole dialogue when we're talking about it. Mm. Yeah, there's all sorts of language that I find to be really loaded. So even I mean, even think about the some of the songs we sing that. We, um, I surrender myself to you. I give myself over. I lay myself down. For some of us, this might feel at minimum benign, you know, and at most it's really rich religious language. Uh, but for others of us, if you've been forced to do those things um, without any sense of, of um, agency or voice and getting to say yes or no, um, then it's really hard to think of surrendering myself to God 
and that being anything other than a traumatizing experience because you have this external power that's bigger and greater than you and who sees all and rules all and here you are just sort of assuming, okay, it's, it's yet one more scenario that I, I don't get to have a voice in this. Um, so I think even that, just starting to think about what does our language say? What is it, how does our language be, you know, betray us as it does in all sorts of ways? That's not to say that uh, we are not called to, in certain ways, be surrendered to the divine. Uh, but how we think about that is really important. And so if we know that certain language is particularly loaded and vulnerable to not being, being experienced as life-giving for the hearers, then I think it behooves us to, um, to just name that, to talk about that. Uh, so I was, I was officiating a wedding a few weeks ago and, and was doing so um, in conjunction with a, a male minister. And uh, he made a joke in the wedding ceremony about uh, submission. And because I'm, I'm trying to be professional in that moment, I thought, okay, I just need to hold this together. But I thought, sir, you have no idea how not funny it is to make a joke about how her husband, her, you know, this woman's soon-to-be husband, probably wishes that we could stop at the part about you know, wives submitting to husbands. Whatever you think about that in terms of its theology, it's not okay to make a joke about it. Because for so many women, whether they experience it as children and, and, and or continue to experience it now, uh, that they are they, they ro are robbed of their sense of, of dignity and, and voice and do not have a sense of presence in their own home. It's not okay to joke about those things. Again, it might have felt very benign to him, but the more that you have proximity to people and their stories, you begin to hear it a different way. I have no choice but to hear certain things this way, and not that I'm, I'm perfect at it by any means, but because I have, have had the incredible... Um, privilege and honor of getting to join in so many of these women's stories, then I think it, is, it behooves me, it is my responsibility to then seek to um, help name their stories in spaces like this and say, hey, here's what these young women are hearing, here's what they're seeing, here's what they're experiencing. Um, so just sometimes if we're aware that a certain term or a phrase or whatever this might be heard a certain certain way. Let's just let's just name it, and let's just let's put some important parameters around to say by this we do not mean X, Y, or Z, and just being really careful with our language. This is a two-part question, maybe a one-part question. It's kind of like I'm giving you the option here, like I did Luke. Y'all are dressed the same, mm -hmm. so I thought all black. <laughs> um, do you think? trauma could be broader than what we typically think of as trauma? Or do you think the causation of trauma might be a little broader than what we originally maybe think? Does that question make any sense? I think so. Um, yeah, so I, I use the term trauma here specifically related to sexualized trauma because that's the, the work that I've, I've most you know, spent time in. There is a distinct difference in a sort of acute localized trauma. So for instance, um, if you've experienced a natural disaster, there's real trauma in that, right? You've, you, know, you lose your home or maybe a family member, whatever it may be, there's real trauma in that. Um, it's not to demean that, it's just to say that that is, is the way that we physiologically experience that trauma is different than someone who, for the first eight years of her life, was in a home where she was raped and violated. Those are different types, and the, the impact that they have on our bodies, on our brains, looks, looks really different. And so there are certainly different, uh, different types. 
Um, and so I think it's important to, to distinguish that as we're thinking about it. And at the same time, I think any human being needs to hear good news. I'm desperate for good news. And every time I'm reminded that I'm an image bearer of God, that's really good news to me. Whether I just had an acute experience of trauma or I've endured it for you know, a decade. So I think there, there's a lot of crossover either way. So a couple questions that came from uh, the group here. And so, and then I want to transition just briefly for myself, but because uh, I'm selfish sometimes. Well, sure. like that. Yeah. yeah. So the first question is, what advice or resources would you give to someone who wants to approach a church leadership about making the atmosphere sur- safer mm. for trauma victims like this? Mm. Great question. You know, um, one of the things that came up in my research when women were just saying, I had them sort of list what, what was harmful or difficult to them in their church or religious settings, and then what was really healing and empowering, and one of the things that they consistently talked about and ranked very highly was uh, when they can tell immediately if a minister and our persons, you know, in leadership, if, if he or she is connected to his or her own brokenness, then that person's orientation is fundamentally different in the way that they speak, preach, you know, behave, whatever it may be. Uh, and so, however we can, we can create cultures that um, name and embrace our own brokenness, whatever that may, you know, whatever ways that may look, uh, I think is, is really important. Um, there are some ministers who are not going to be willing to do so. They, they just, they're not, they're not willing. Uh, but, but there are a lot of folks, I find so many, uh, maybe uninformed but really well-intentioned folks who are doing, uh, you know, wanting to do really good work in ministry and love their people well, and they think they might be uh, willing to uh, to have this, you know, this sort of conversation. So, creating cultures where um, where brokenness is just named and it's okay, it's a safe space. Um, another thing that these women talk about often is just feeling incredibly unsafe in a church setting, whether that's emotionally unsafe, it's not a space where I could share my story. My friend Sarah has not yet found a space where she could name even, gosh, you know, a, a small bit, a fraction of, of the things that she's experienced. And part of that's okay. Uh, there's some things that she doesn't have to share with everybody, um, but she'd love to find a space where she could feel like I don't have to hide or, or she, you know, um, remain in the shadows. Um, so if we, whether we're in positions of leadership or not, whatever that looks like, if we are connecting with our own brokenness and we are, are embracing that sort of vulnerability and we are actively experiencing healing through the work of the Spirit in our lives and in our community with one another, then our orientation to trauma survivors in our community will make a huge impact. Um, regardless of how a person, you know, a minister, a person in leadership might respond, though that is incredibly important. Yeah, ask a follow-up to that. Mm-hmm. Um, are you familiar with covering identity? The idea of covering identity. Mm-hmm. So, we we all have diversity, and depending on how unsafe or unwelcome we feel in a mm-hmm. culture, there are things we cover about ourselves. Mm-hmm. We hide, and so uh, a silly one might be, I'm a, I'm, I'm a Trump supporter but I don't want anybody in my community to know I'm a Trump supporter mm-hmm. or I'm not a Trump supporter. And so I don't want any, and so we hide those things. And so it kind of broadens the discussion of diversity. Um, so to that question, I, and, and you referenced it, the church first has to be a safe place mm-hmm. to, to be able to name things. Mm-hmm. How, how valuable is it for women or men that have experienced trauma to be able to tell their stories to the church leadership? Mm-hmm. How, how would that change the culture or the, leader, the thoughts of the leaders there? 
It matters a whole lot. It's one of the things that uh, the women named in my research, that being able to, to name their story and experiences. Um, and then also, one of the things that was most difficult for them is if they attempted to do so and it was received really poorly. That can really shut someone down. So um, one woman I was talking to the first time that she dared, and she was from a, um, a very long lineage of, of church folks. I won't even mention the denomination, but... Um, where it was even more risky for her to, in that same denomination, sort of name. And so she did so in a very um, careful way, but just wrote on a prayer service, on a prayer service one, wrote on a, on a card, um, I would like prayer for, um, for myself. I'm, you know, I've, I've experienced significant sexual trauma. Didn't name, you know, anybody involved. And uh, the person reading the card got it, and, and the, the first words out of his mouth were, God, we pray for so-and-so, and we ask you to forgive her of her sins. Um, it is not that because she has, she has survived sexual trauma that she's somehow incapable of making bad choices, right? Any of us are capable of making some bad choices. It's not to say that she's, she's ever um, sinned, if you will. Uh, that was clearly not the right thing to say in that moment. And here she risked you know, naming this experience, and it was received so poorly, probably by someone, I'm in a hope, probably by someone who just didn't know what to do, and so just sort of um, just messed it up and, and kind of fumbled along. Um, but when women are, when their stories are heard and, and received, and folks are present with them fully, they do not leave, they're not scared, when a minister's first thought is not, I do not have the training to know what to do with this, and how am I going to... I get it. I'm not a trauma specialist myself. My training is in, is in theology. There are folks who are well-equipped to handle the, the difficulties of walking a person through this sort of healing process, whether therapy or whatever. You do not have to be all things. But anybody can be a safe presence. Anybody can be fully present with another human being and receive his or her story and honor the dignity of that person in that moment. Any of us can do that. So I do have a question. This is my more kind of one for what I'm processing as I listen to what you talk about. But looking at a church that's trying to engage with a generation that's dealing with trauma on statistics that are startling, you know, one in three and one in seven and um, so we've talked a lot about what you do whenever you deal with, or you have people recognizing that they're here. How do you respond and shift your language and those different things? Are there steps the church can take or organizations can take on the preventative side of that? How can we, is the, I know that lament would be a, a huge piece, recognizing it, giving name to it, uh, acknowledging the presence of trauma and, and how both people who are victims and possible perpetrators of trauma in our congregations. Mm -hmm. um, so are there other steps that you would kind of just say two or three things maybe that, that would help churches mm -hmm. be on the front end of this to try to drop those statistics to make life safer for a generation that, that is already dealing with trauma on such high levels? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a couple things come to mind. Um, one is believing somebody. Uh, statistics are quite low for folks who um, falsely report sexual abuse or rape or things like that. It does occasionally occur, but it's pretty pretty low. 
Um, so just giving someone the benefit of doubt and believing him or her and walking with him or her through it. Um, better training for ministers. So again, I'm not, I'm not advocating that, that a minister or a teacher or whatever your role is that you must be all things because we all know that we all carry incredible responsibility in each of our roles. Um, but just having some of the training like you all mentioned, Brandon, that you're doing is incredibly important. And the women themselves that I interviewed and worked with uh, named that. Um, lastly, the structures that shape our institutions uh, will always either perpetuate or prevent this type of trauma. And so if we are in an institution where women are devalued and our voices are not heard, then you better believe that you're not going to hear us when we talk about how we've been raped. If our voices are not fully welcomed in every way possible, if our bodies are not fully welcomed in every space without shame and without having to hide back in any way, then when we dare to name in those settings that we have been traumatized, not only is it uh, it's not going to be, uh, be believed, but it's going to continue. That, that sort of behavior is going to, um, going to continue. And so I'm a huge advocate of making sure that the structures that, we, um, that, that uh, shape the work that we do, um, that those stories, those narratives that we that we tell ourselves and then inform us, that they have incredible power to either contribute to the full dignity of all human beings or to, to or to um, degrade it. I think almost every speaker, and this has surprised me, and it shouldn't have. Almost every speaker has referenced the image of God. Mm. Jamie did, Matthew did, Luke did, Josh did, you mm -hmm. did. Um, and if I, thinking of contribute and all the verses that we could use for contribute, I would have never used the, the image of God mm -hmm. concept. I don't know why. Probably everybody else here would. Why is it so important to go back to Genesis, to go back to the beginning, mm -hmm. and to use the imagery of image of God? Mm -hmm. We are made in his image because it is irreducibly the most true thing about each and every one of us. So again, even if, regardless of our experiences of trauma or lack thereof, it is what's most true. It's, it's still, it's most true for the trauma survivor and the trauma um, perpetrator. That um, he or she, whether the one who is the oppressor or the oppressed, still bears the image of God. And that's difficult. There's days I wish that wasn't true. But what it, what it does help me do is, um, at least on my best days, not other people, and particularly in this case, maybe not other. I might be more naturally empathetic and sympathetic towards the survivors and maybe a lot more angry at those who've, who have inflicted the injustice. But when I remember that this person is a beloved image bearer of God, then I can hold space for his or her dignity, even when it's hard to see, when I can hold space for the love that, that God has for this person and know that he or she may also be a survivor of trauma and out of his or her own experiences is perpetuating this sort of injustice. That's a different posture for me. That's difficult some days. Sometimes it's a little more easy. Sometimes it's really difficult. But I need to hold that as true for all people in this, in this equation. And it's something that is not dependent on how I feel. It's not dependent on whether I like this person. It's not dependent on whether I agree with this person. It has nothing to do with me, and it's not dependent on, on anything that I do or say or think or feel. It is irreducibly true about, about who they are. That's great. This will be the last question, and it's a question that was sent in, and I think it's a great question, and it's 
Um, what does space for lament look like? Mm. Like like when churches create space for lament, what does that look like? Well, growing up, my heritage, probably the only space was the preacher going, please come as we stand and sing. Mm. You know, that, that was, and that was kind of a, not even a real space for that. So what does that actually practically look like for churches or schools or universities? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it can look a lot of ways. I think Having routine practices, however often that may be, you know, whatever, let's, let's just say, you know, once a quarter that a church had a night for lament where the whole intent was for folks to be able to come together and to just grieve what they were experiencing, what their friends are experiencing, what the world is experiencing, uh, to know that that's the purpose of this space, to be able to weep and to wail and to yell, to, uh, to curse, to cry, I mean, whatever it is, just your honest experience uh, because we don't have a whole lot of spaces to do that um, in healthy communities with other embodied persons. Maybe we do it real quickly in a, in a text or tweet, um, and then it's disengaged. But to do so with other human beings in the room and knowing that, that the, um, the divine is with us and we're invited into that divine dance, um, that's, a, that's a really incredible space. And then also to do so... Uh, at very acute times of of injustice or um, or difficulty or pain. So if there's you know if there's a school shooting in your city or there's a, a national disaster, you know, whatever it may be, part of our response needs to be you know crafting spaces where we and other folks can come and just grieve, that we can just can can express all that we're that we're holding and uh, and carrying. That's great. We're gonna have to do more with podcast. We'll, okay. we'll have to figure out a time to, to do this again. Yeah, let's do it. Thank you very much. Let's give her a round of applause. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, please hit subscribe and follow our podcast. It's important that we continue these relevant conversations for Christian education.